Success looks so easy from the outside, but all successful people have had to overcome enormous obstacles along the way. And in many cases, look failure right in the eye. Most successful people don't focus on the struggle and rarely do they talk about it because quite frankly, that's not what creates success. Join us here where we will chat with fierce female entrepreneurs and share the good, the bad, and the ugly of entrepreneurship and talk about the obstacles we have faced and how you can overcome them to reach the success that you desire. I am your host, Cami Lehman, and this is the She's Invincible Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on the She's Invincible podcast. Guess what? We have another invincible one to introduce you to today. Oh, my gosh. It is my greatest honor to introduce you to Carrie Severson. She is the author of Unapologetically Enough and the boss lady behind the Unapologetic Voice House, a hybrid publishing house Welcome, Carrie. Welcome to the She's Invincible podcast. It is so great to have you here. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I love uh, it. And I love short bios. That's probably the shortest one I've ever wrote. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, it makes it easier for me. But right. I love to hear. I love to share with the people like what a rock star you are. So I don't mind the long ones, but I'm just so excited to have you here. And I just kind of want to paint a little picture of, um, you know, our association, you know, you and I met like a year and a half ago or more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you were like publishing, 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 and you had authors coming out that were writing books and, Mm -hmm. um, and it was so much fun because some of them I've had on the podcast. So they've already been on the show. And so I just love that. And I was so honored when you reached out to me when you wrote your book, right? (laughs) And you were like, hey, that's right. That's right. And, you know, I would part the sea to make a place for you to have this platform to just, you know, I'm so excited about your book and I'm just so excited to have you here and to be a part of the sharing and stepping into that next level of greatness that That you you are doing. So I am here for it. And I would love to jump in right now. Let's tell our listeners how in the world did you get where you are today? And what makes you invincible? Very fun. Well, my story goes back to um, middle school. I uh, was bullied as a kid. I am 5'9". I've got crazy curly hair curves that ebb and flow. But back then they were flowing. (laughs) Um, And um, I didn't really have anyone to look up to as a role model. Actually, the only person that really looked like me that was portrayed in television or in magazines was from The Facts of Life. And I think, I can't remember what character, but um, her her real name is Kelly. I can't remember what, if it was Tootie or something like that. But anyway, I was bullied as a kid a lot. And Um, always by girls. In fact, I write about it in Unapologetically Enough that my fight or flight really kicked in in seventh grade. I had to basically bribe my way with costume jewelry to the toughest kids in school to make sure that I didn't get beat up from kids in my grade, from girls specifically in my grade. So that, um, but I was always really creative. I took my, I took my energy out through creativity. I wrote as a kid, random stuff, poems, music, whatever, um, short stories. I lost myself in fiction as a kid. I loved like R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike. And um, and then I danced. I loved being on stage. Creative expression, like just sort of moved me always. Um, When I grew up, I knew from an early age, I wanted to do something that would help women relate better to women so that they would raise daughters to relate better to other girls, right? Um, And I went into school for journalism, thought I would work my way up the ladder, get um, somewhere in a big media outlet and then change where the spotlight landed so that girls who look like me 
had role models that looked like them. Um, I felt like if girls were given additional outlets or additional like people to admire, everyone would be less concerned about looking the same way and picking on those who didn't look like them, right? I grew up in the 80s and so the supermodel, it wasn't just models, it was supermodels. It was very hard for a kid like me. Um, so I got a, a degree in journalism, went off and started writing for platforms all over the place and never really felt like it was still landing. Like I was writing about celebrities and um, heart surgery and dogs and pens and whatever came my way, I wrote about it. Um, until I got to my late 20s, my early 30s, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to really lean into a purpose. How can I make the world a better place? How can I make an impact? And I went back to that thought I had as a kid about somebody's got to do something to help girls be better to other girls, to help women be better to other women. It was always an element of self-esteem. There was always this element of like, we can be better together. We can be one together. And um, so I spent years in my early 30s researching self-esteem and girls, researching who was doing one around the country. And I ended up launching a nonprofit in 2011 called Severson Sisters that was a bullying solutions organization for young girls. And it just so happened at the time, the first lady uh, of the United States had just created a stopbullying.gov and the first lady of Phoenix created stopbullying.z. So my little one man shop, one woman shop was catapulted into the national spotlight pretty much from the beginning. Um, and so that's what I did. I, had a, I went around the country, I taught uh, facilitators how to implement an after-school program called Seaverson Sisters Supergirl. Um, we gave girls bullying solution uh, opportunities to report bullying, um, empathize with one another, communication skills to literally communicate better in person. Uh, it was a really cool organization that caught on fire. It was something I think people were really looking for, parents were really looking for. And so I took off running at a pace that I couldn't keep up with. Um, speaking segments all over the country, media segments all over the country. I talk about this a lot. I, I came home one day from a Zumba class and there were news trucks outside my house waiting to get a sound bite from me about something that was happening on Capitol Hill in DC that had something to do with girls. I just got to a point where it was so overwhelming. I burned out. Mm. Man, that's big stuff. So then, so what happened next? When you say you burned out, like, what do you do yeah. when that happens? <laughs> What's your next move? Right. Um, burnout for me, everyone experiences it differently. But for me, it was a, it was a psychological defeat, um, super negative self-talk. It was a physical reaction. I had put on like 50 pounds in like two years. Um, my, I had been seeing a, a naturopath and we were working through so many physical symptoms, right? My thyroid was not working. My cortisol level was through the roof, all these things. So it actually was, I'm from Wisconsin. Um, ever since I was a kid, we would have this huge 4th of July party. And I called up my parents and I was like, I need to come home. And I don't know when I can come back to Phoenix. And so you know, ever since, you know, I could remember my, my growing up, that place was a safe haven. Whenever I needed it, it was there. And so my parents were like, yeah, absolutely. Come here. And I could work from wherever. So I went home to recover. I gave a bunch of responsibilities to my board members. And I was like, I need to fix me. Otherwise this won't survive. And, um, I spent weeks on my childhood porch in the backyard crying, screaming, working out every emotion I could to get to a different layer so that I could alter my state of being. And um, it, that took about eight weeks of me literally just sort of unraveling 18-hour workdays for years on end, right? So mm. um, burnout was rough. And I 
I sympathize with folks going through it today because I know um, I know so many women, women specifically, it, it it like attacks us because we try to do so much, and we do, we do, we don't just try, we do so much, right? Yes, yes. I know a lot of women are experiencing COVID, are experiencing burnout because of COVID, and running their business and running the household. And I mean, like when kids were virtual learning, managing virtual learning so that they weren't like playing video games and stuff. Um, but burnout is a, a beast. Um, yeah, I, it took some time. I recovered from it. And part of my recovery process was really helping me understand what made me happy, what brought me stillness and peace and so I had to really redefine, that's when I started to redefine what the concept of success meant for me, because I attached money and legitimate fame to success. Mm. I remember this one time, um, I was on the news so much, I was on the media so much that if ever the media got um, a slow news day, they would throw something back up about me because I was... I was, you know, featured on USA Network and I was in Glamour Magazine and I um, I was like this media darling. And so this one time I was sitting at the bar, <laughs> it was at a wine bar. It was Friday at 4.45. I was sitting with my girlfriend and suddenly I felt all these people staring at me and I was like, what the, what, and you know, what's happening? <laughs> what in the, and everyone started looking up at the screen that was above the bar and there I am on TV talking about something or another and I'm like, I, whatever, I don't even know what to say about that but yeah so redefining what success meant to me was really how I started to move my way out of burnout and um one of the things that I had to start reframing around success was that it had nothing to do with money it had nothing to do with the number of donors we had or the number of news segments or speak you know speaking engagements it had to do with how I felt and if I was burned out stressed, fatigue, and none of it. I, I disassociated success with it. So it was like success for me from this point forward is me feeling happy, me feeling joyful, me feeling light, me feeling, and I just started working my way through what I wanted to feel with the idea of success. Um, and then how do I do that? How do I move that feeling into a practicality of doing this, right? So here's the thing. So when that happened, you ended up closing down that foundation, right? Yeah. And then is that yeah. when you moved into the unapologetic voice? Yes. So um, I actually started traveling again. I started, I wanted to visit friends again. So I wound up randomly at this party out in um, California somewhere and happened to meet a stranger, random woman. She's like, so tell me about yourself. What do you do? And I was like, well, I'm actually a recovered burnout, but um, I'm an entrepreneur. And and she's like, wait, wait, wait. And she was working for the Huffington Post at the time. And Ariana Huffington had just come out with Thrive. And she's like, you should write about burnout. It's going to be the next best thing, the next big thing. And I did. And that was 2014. And I wrote this, I don't know, 500 word, 600 word piece for Huffington Post about burnout on a Friday and it went viral and it, it wasn't very well written. I hadn't written anything about myself in a long time, but it really spoke to people. And the response was what really made me see that my chapter in life was shifting. So yeah, I closed the nonprofit and women started coming forward and asking me to help them write stories. Tell me how, you know, how do they get on stage? How do they share their stories with the world? So that's where my next chapter really began when I started vocalizing the burnout experience. And it's common in entrepreneurship, very common actually. Sure. Um, so that's where this book really began. The response from that gave me the courage to put some more thought in place, right? So this whole journey of putting this book out uh, started in 2014. I started pitching agents, literary agents, trying to get picked up for a book deal in 2014. I pitched more than 80. And over the court, the next several years of really working behind the scenes of helping 
people write their stories and put their, you know, their voices out into the world. I was behind the scenes trying to grow a platform and put this book together and pitch myself. And I got rejected time and time and time again. My book is well-written. My voice is well-established. Agents love the work, compared it to really big authors. Like my book was compared to Eat, Pray, Love a lot of times. It was compared to Dairy Greatly a number of times. But because I didn't have their platform numbers, agents always passed on me. And so uh, I don't know how, um, how intuition works for you or how these like God moments work. But for me, it's when I feel um, something close, like a, 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 an opening, right? Something closes, something opens. And so this one day after getting rejected so many times, I woke up and I felt this presence in my heart that was like, just go be the house, just go do this. And so I did, I launched the Unapologetic Voice House after years of being rejected to help women put their voices out to the world who have amazing stories, big, bold voices without big, bold platform members. And I, um, I published, I think maybe 35 books until I decided to start putting energy behind mine. So, I love it. So tell yeah. us what makes you invincible. I think my resiliency of knowing I meant to do something I always do something phenomenal. Like I, I've done many things that I'm really, really great for. I think one of my greatest gifts though is my ability to write in a raw, vulnerable fashion to connect us as this one that I, you know, that mission I had when I was a kid. And the, my determination to put that message out to the world has been something I've been manifesting since I was a kid. I love it. I love, and I love resilience, that resiliency, right? That is such a big, uh, big player when it comes to being invincible, because you Mm -hmm. do have to be resilient. You do have to bounce back. You have to be able to take it. Well, this, this, what a journey. I mean, seriously, that is, and they they haven't even heard half of it, right? So (laughs) let's jump in today. We're talking about that enoughness, right? The enoughness, the redefining, accepting it, loving it, being it. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited because so many women, like you said earlier, they do, they wrestle with this, right? Um, They're constantly, constantly battling and overcoming. And the thing is, it never ends. Like if, unless you never try to do anything great in your life, it never ends. It's all, it's, it's the first person, right. Or the first thing to confront you as soon as your mind says, Oh, I'm going to do this great thing. Right. And all of a sudden there it is. And it's just there and it doesn't go away until you do the great thing. And then it, you go to do something else. Great. So people who don't do anything great, don't really face it because they've given into it. Uh, But here you are, you're still journeying and you're still Mm -hmm. overcoming these things. So let's jump in. Let's tell our listeners about this enoughness. Why, why is it important? How are they over going to overcome it? And what does it feel like when you finally do face that giant, right? When you face that, that Goliath, if you'll call it and, and slay it. Right. So Mm. let's go there. Okay. Well, the first one is facing it. It's incredibly uncomfortable, flat out scary, really for me it was like painful it was like bringing I get the image of like bringing in all the hurt parts of myself from all the years that I've left behind my 16 year old self my that fight or flight girl that felt like she had to literally ride her way through middle school um I bring us together and I like sit down and I pretend that I'm hugging everybody and then I I feel all the stuff that I've been avoiding so going back to like how it was me crying in the, on the back porch of my childhood home, I had to face resentment. I had to face anger. I had to face guilt. I just like literally went around this circle of all these feelings. I had been pretending weren't there, forcing it down so I could put this front up. Um, for me, that's how facing the Goliath really happened was it's okay to feel all the stuff. And once I felt it, and I actually let it process through me and like feeling the anger and the hurts and the pain and all this, um, 
it started to feel lighter. It started to feel less, um, uh, constrained or like, I didn't have to hold on to that anymore in order to prove I've been through stuff, prove that, um, in order for me to be tough or, um, invincible, I had to hold on to this anger. There was that element of like, um, I've gone through everything I have to bring forward. So, um, for me, reshaping how I loved myself, redefining how, what self-love meant for me, which is the second part of this book, that was really how I started to accept my idea of enough. It wasn't just like reading, looking at myself in the mirror and, you know, stating affirmations and mantras. It was, <laughs> um, accepting that I don't have to do everything right in this being, right in this moment. I don't have to do it right. First of all, I don't have to do it all at once in order for me to still be enough as I was yesterday, as I will be tomorrow, there was this sort of acknowledgement that um, I am here as magical as I'll ever be, as important as I ever was or ever will be in every moment of every day. And that could be me sitting on a park bench, looking at the clouds, pretending that there's like, um, you know, uh, I used to sit on this park bench looking out at this lake, looking at the reflection of the clouds and listening to all the birds. And as I would sit there, I'd imagine that like tree roots were going out of my feet and that like big champagne bubbles were filling my body. And it felt like um, peace, stillness, like finding that element of, again, I come back to this concept of oneness. That was what, that's what it was for me. My idea of enough is that I am one with myself. And however I had to get there is how I had to get there. And so some days it was just sitting on a bench, pretending that tree roots were going down to my feet and my body was filled with like pink light. I love that analogy. We even just to visualize that when you said it about champagne bubbles filling your body, like, oh my gosh, how exciting, right? Yeah. And yeah, like that is the coolest thing. All right. So I really want to dig into this. So tell me about... The the time just before you were like, I need to go home. I need to go back to home base and like lose it all so I can get it all right again, mm -hmm. right? Um, there are people going through that today. They don't even know, right? They don't even realize what's happening. So I would love for you to share a little bit about how you were feeling. How was that showing up in you that you got to the place where like the bells went off and we're like, Carrie, you got to do something different mm -hmm. and you need to do it right now because you're not going to make it through this. Like what was going on? How did you know? What were the signs? Well, when I went back, I've gone back home twice. When I went back home the first time, it was to recover from burnout. I was, um, there was apathy running through me. I was running an organization for the benefit of young girls and I didn't care anymore. And that was my sign where I was like, I and broke. Like, um, I had racked up so much financial debt because I took like a 55% pay cut to run a nonprofit that I created. I'd used my 401k. There was nothing left. I was physically in pain. Mentally, I was exhausted and I didn't care. There was no more. I had nothing left to give. And, um, the last straw was I just won this huge award with USA Network and this you know, big grant came in and I was using a ton of it to pay everybody else. And I got what was left over. And I'm like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. So there was so many things that finally led up to, I can't, like, I can't do it again. I can't do this anymore. But for me, it was the emotional element of not caring. That really was like, you know, I should get some stuff figured out here. That was to recover from burnout. When I recovered from burnout, I was out here making friends, doing, you know, traveling, dating again. Um, I, um, quick story, I wound up on this really bad date and he was like, you're too old. You know what? I, I always, I'm, I always got, why haven't you been married before? Why don't you have kids before? And I, um, I got it so many times that I actually would 
considered laminating a response card and just carrying it around with me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I got it all the time. So I was always like, I ran after my career. I did this thing. Now I'm ready to pursue, you know, this other part of my life. So I was on this bad date and he, I was 37 at the time. And he's like, oh, you're too old to get married and have kids. And I ended up writing about that experience for Redbook. And um, it was great. The response was just as big as it was when I wrote for Huffington Post. And what I realized was I, I, I moved out of fear. I was like, oh my God, maybe he's right. So I made a deal with myself back then. And I was like, if I don't meet the guy I'm going to end up marrying and having babies with, I should, as a single woman, preserve my eggs. And so at 38, I started to, I did, I went through two rounds of IVF by myself. They both failed and they ruined the, I think they ruined my immune system. So about um, two weeks after my last shot, I ended up with 107 shots, fertility drugs. Two weeks later, I got the first case of flu I've ever had in 20 years. After that, I got the second case. And then over the course of the next five months, I got eight bacteria infections and mold poisoning. So going back to your question about where was I before I went home, I was in a MRI machine getting my body scanned for rheumatoid arthritis, um, MS, cancer. I mean, like doctor after doctor couldn't figure out why I was so sick. And so finally, I said, I have had enough with mainstream medicine. I need to go find somebody else that will dig in deeper. And I wound up at a functional medicine's doctor's office. And the first, you know, she, we spent two hours together and she just asked me question after question after question. And so finally we got to the fertility treatments and she used the word trauma. And she's like, tell me about your trauma. And that question led me to uh, using a full box of tissue and crying at a, at a soul level, I don't think I've ever reached before. And I hadn't, I hadn't seen it as trauma prior to that. And she's like, I can help you heal, but it's, it's going to require a team of people because you have so much information in your body. Your body is riddled with drugs that needs to express. Um, Oh, and I had this gigantic rash from underneath my armpit all the way down to my hip bone. It was like, it was, my body wanted, was like screaming at me. Um, so I came home from that doctor's appointment and I called my parents again and I was like, I think I need to come home again. My body is in pain. Uh, I'm in pain. I need to heal. And so there, both times there was this element of, um, I need support. I'm in pain in some way and I can't do by myself anymore and mm. so I did I got on a plane went back to Wisconsin and I stayed there the second time I was at home recovering um I really it took a lot of time much longer than eight weeks and I um I really dove into the idea of what self-love meant to me because I did this I did that to myself. I moved out of, of a place of fear of never being able to have kids or see myself as enough of a woman without my own children that I put my body through legitimate hell and torture. And um, that's what I had to unpack. So the idea of enough really turned for me when I leaned into who said I needed to get married and have kids to be enough. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's society, right? So that's what right. they expect of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, unpacking that healing from that led, I mean, I was in so much pain. There were days, um, where all I had was my brain. <laughs> the only thing that worked was like my eyeballs and my brain, because Lifting my head hurt too much. Um, I was bedridden for a number of months after that. And what I was able to recognize in myself in those moments of true 
just stillness of allowing my body to be totally still underneath the covers, um, letting myself feel everything I had to feel was that I was as loved in that moment of total breakdown as I was on stage in front of hundreds of people, as I was in a, a news outlet that, you know, millions of people were watching. I was as important as enough, as loved, bedridden underneath the covers. And um, that really changed my life. So let me ask you this. What is the one thing, if you had to say that there was the one biggest thing that supported you the most in that, that process, what was that? Oh, you know what? <laughs> um, I am incredibly spiritual. And so honest to God, it was my, it was my faith. It was my intuition. It was like, I, I didn't ever really want to be a burden on my parents or my family at the time. So I didn't talk about the amount of pain that was in at the time. They know about it now because I put it down in words and put it in this book. Um, but then it was my conversations with my higher power. I got through it there. And so on the good days, I would walk over to a nearby pond and I would, it's a mile. It took me like 30 minutes to walk it. And I would stand on this bench. And that's when I started to practice the like tree roots are crumbling out of my feet. My body's filled with lights. I'm using all my sensories. Like I'm opening up my ears. I'm listening to all the different birds. I'm feeling the wind on my skin. I really tuned into my external um, sensors, you know? Sure. And started to feel lighter and better because I was incorporating all my elements of um, my surroundings, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. Well, I would love to talk a little bit more about your book, your book, Unapologetically Enough, Reshaping Success and Self-Love. So I know we Thank just you. talked a lot about, you know, what drove you, what, you know, where that story comes from, but mm -hmm. tell our listeners, why do they need to read this book and what, how is it going to support them? What are they going to learn uh, from your story? Well, from the feedback I've gotten so far, I'm so impressed by the concept of enoughness is something that I think every woman faces at least once in their life. The idea of like, I'm not being enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not um, working hard enough. Um, she doesn't, you know, whether we're looking at external validation from our bosses, from our, uh, our loved ones, um, our family, our spouses, sometimes we don't feel like we want to feel or we don't feel like we're being treated in the way that we want to be treated. Um, from the feedback I've gotten from folks who have read this, advanced copies, no matter what part they connect with, they always feel like I'm their friend talking to them directly about their specific life. Um, I got a comment the other day that she was like, I cried so much in this book. I laughed so much in this book. I nodded along with you every step of the way because you were telling my story. Another comment I got was, um, this is a must have for mental health, which is something great. I hadn't really anticipated that aspect, but enoughness is a universal, is a universal thing we all feel. It is that idea of us coming together and stop comparing ourselves to one another start lifting each other up. And it's something we've talked about for a long time, but we're still struggling with it. I agree. Yeah. That's what this podcast, this is what drove me to even start this podcast was just right. working with women and watching them, you know, sabotage themselves because yeah. they were comparing themselves. They were coming up short. They were, you know, watching the highlight reels and comparing them, their, their really reality to someone else's yep. highlight reel on social media. Yep. And they were giving up before they even got started and just believing they couldn't. And I want to bring this up to you. One of the things you said was only two things were working in your body, your eyes and your brain. And <laughs> all I could think of is that's all you really needed, right? <laughs> like, because honestly, everything starts with a thought. And so here you are seeing and visualizing, you know, the imagination of it all. 
um, in that creation. That's yeah. really all you need is, the, and, and honestly, you don't even need eyes, right? Helen Keller says the only thing worse than having no sight is having sight and having no vision. And oh my goodness, right? So honestly, you could have just had a brain working and you still could have pulled this off uh, because you had the vision, you were able to create, you were able to tap into your imagination. And you know, that's more than just creating, that's seeing it done, right? right. Like by the time you, you started pre-selling your book, you had already seen it sold a million times, right? Like we do that over and over. That's how we get the job done. That's how we cross the finish line. We don't cross it in the reality or the facts. We cross it in our vision, in our imagination, and then everything else follows. It's kind of like when people say, throw your heart over the line, right? And the rest of your body will follow. That's what this whole vision and imagination is. I just think it's the most amazing story. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, you guys, you got to get this book. Unapologetically Enough, Reshaping Success and Mm. Self-Love with Carrie Severson. And Carrie, tell our listeners where they can find you. Well, um, so unapologeticallyenough.com. If you're interested in the book or talking to me directly about the book, come on over there. And then uh, the publishing house is the unapologeticvoicehouse.com. Um, a really quick story about the concept of, I mean, the word enough itself is um, something I really struggled with that when I was moving to burnout and redefining success and self-love uh, because I looked at it as an element of lack. I saw it, and I think a lot of women do this. We don't have enough. We don't believe we have enough. We don't believe, you know, so there's this piece of lack. What I think we do, I do so well in this book and what my editing team and I work so hard on this book about is flipping that on its head to see us as abundant beings, as beautiful creatures, as, you know, God-given, talented, remarkable women who are enough as we are right now without doing a single thing, without being anything else. And it is a, it is a shift in perspective. It really is reshaping how we look at it. And so if, um, if, if you aren't an entrepreneur, you can still relate to this book. If you aren't interested in being um, a mother or putting yourself through IVF, you can still relate to this book because it really does help you reshape the concept of enough. I love it. I love, I it. love it. It's beautiful. It is definitely the best thing I've ever created as a writer. It took eight years, four revisions, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. Well, you know, Carrie, we promise our listeners, on, I see you hugging your book. Oh my gosh, you guys, she just picked her book up off the table and she gave it a big fat hug. Oh, and you know what? Rightfully so. This is your baby and you deserve all the best for that. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And just before we get to the good stuff, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly, I have this great announcement for you. We are starting the Pod Power Hour, which is a virtual event that's going to happen on Wednesdays at noon Eastern. And so if you've ever thought about having a podcast, if you have questions, if you are a podcaster, and you want to come and meet other podcasters and learn what's new, what's happening, tips and tricks to be better at this amazing passion of podcasting that you have, we would love for you to join us. We're going to have experts there that are going to be sharing their genius. It's going to be amazing. So, and if you're a host and you want to come meet some amazing uh, people that could be potential guests for you on your show, come on out. What a great way to get exposure. Be sure to check it out on my website at camilehman.com as well as follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Whatever is your favorite platform, we will have registration there. You do need to register to attend and it is on Zoom. So super simple, just one hour every other Wednesday. We start on May 4th, so don't miss out. Get registered today. We can't wait to see you there. You have moved from fighting cancer 
to discovering how to live beyond it. But what now? With so many emotional side effects still unknown, as a new survivor, you find yourself in a void as you navigate through the isolation, fear, and an uncertain future that can overshadow you and your family for years to come. Instead of focusing on the uncertainty of cancer, consider how strong and determined you are and think of the strength demonstrated by those who stood beside you through it all. Consider this. You now get to choose who you want to be and what your intentional, fulfilled life can look like. You made it through treatment. We can help you define yourself as a survivor. We're here to help you through this moment, to walk beside you as you shift your mindset from counting the days of life to creating a legacy. For more information, visit www.adventuretherapyfoundation.org or contact us at info at adventurefound.org. But you know, on the She's Invincible podcast, we promise our listeners that we're going to bring them fierce female entrepreneurs. We're going to share expert zones of genius, which you have done so well today. But we also promise them that we're going to pull back the curtain. We are mm. going to share the good, the bad, and the ugly of this journey that you have taken over this course of your life to bring you to the success that you enjoy today. So I would love to tell a few stories uh, real quick before we say goodbye. I want, I want to show, show the people, right, that you are successful today. You have this fabulous book that's coming out right now. Actually, it's available right now as you're listening. You can click the show notes and you can click right in to order Carrie's book or connect with her to have further conversation uh, to see how you can, you know, she can support you or you two could work together in the future, especially in the future if you want to write your own book too or you need some help with that. But uh, right now we're going to tell a few stories. And because I mentioned that women are constantly comparing themselves, they want your success, Carrie, but they're not always willing to put up with what you had to put up with to get there. They -hmm. just want that other success, the one where you just go from point A to point B. They don't want that squiggly one that takes you into all those places like crying on your back porch with your parents and, you know, and facing, facing that not enoughness in every form that it showed up in. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that right now. So let's start with the good. Tell us the story of the good or the great part of this journey to your success. Okay. Well, I'm living the good right now, holding unapologetically enough in my hand. This is amazing because this is eight up. This is eight years of dedication. This is invincible right here. This like resilience of making sure that this gets out into the world. Um, a story about this is something that happened just recently. Um, as I'm speaking slowly about it, because I'm like, should I really tell this story? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're um, telling a good story or a great yeah, story. Okay. So tell us a story. Okay. Well, um, so I've decided to start pitching this to uh, celebrities, to folks that I think can help kind of get the word out, right, in a massive place. And so Reese, Reese Witherspoon agreed to accept a copy of the book a couple of weeks ago. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm a good, uh, so the story behind that, I decided to pitch her press team and, you know, I got a yes, pretty immediate, which in itself is fantastic. I was sitting by myself at a coffee shop. And when I, big moments like this do tend to happen to me when I'm by myself, actually. And so I popped up off of my table and there was no one around for me to like celebrate with. So I'm standing there with my hands up next to my face, like, Oh, my Lanza, what is happening? And one of the like waiters comes over and he's like, ma'am, are you okay? And I'm like, Reese Witherspoon just accepted a copy of my book. And he grabbed my hands and he's like, ma'am, I'm so excited for you. And I was like, me too. And I had this moment with this total stranger. And he, he, sits, he sits down at the table next to me and he's like, okay, so tell me everything. What does that mean? And I'm like, um... I don't know yet. All I know is I get to send her a copy of my book. And 
Um, it took me like three days to write her cover letter. I went through like 12 pieces of paper. I took a video of my hand because my hand was shaking so badly. But I take it to the UPS store a couple of days later and I hand the lady like my package addressed to her. And she doesn't even look at me. I'm standing there like straight faced waiting for some sort of response. She goes right to her computer and she's like, look, clearly we have to have a conversation about this. And I was like, yes, ma'am, we do. <laughs> and so she sends it off and, you know, hands me back my receipt. And she's like, so tell me what's happening. And um, it's just, it was so fun to have these like random little sparks of excitement from strangers. I love that. That, that happens to me a lot when I'm in the good and I'm, free and I'm vocal about the good that's happening and I get to spread that joy, it is reflected back to me. Um, and that I think is what we live for as entrepreneurs or like, at least for me, I, I love that. That helps me continue the momentum until the next little spark happens, right? I love it. Oh my gosh, how exciting. So the guy in the coffee shop got to be the first one to hear the story. Oh, that's so much fun. <laughs> and I've never, I've gone back several times looking for him. I haven't seen him. I have no idea. He could have been like, you know, he could have just been like a substitute or a temp. I haven't, I look for him. He's not, I haven't Harry, seen him yet. He quit his job at the coffee shop <laughs> and he's on a porch somewhere writing his book. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Oh, I love it. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. All right. As fun as that is, we have to hear a story about the bad. Uh, yeah. And let's save the ugly for last. So let's tell a story about the bad part of this journey. Well, um, the bad part really was being in a, the, you know, moving into burnout, crashing. That is, that was bad. Um, it was like a freight train. I couldn't stop because there was so much demand. I didn't have an infrastructure built around me. I was the spoke, the wheel, the, the you know, the things that come out of the spoke into the wheel to make the thing turn. I was all of it. I was the whole damn bike and I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. Um, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs do like, right. We were solopreneurs. We do it all. Uh, but when I hit a genre or a topic that was catapulted into the national media, um, it's amazing. I have very high moments, but the bad was, it was bad. So, um, I couldn't, I, I, uh, I do have a story about that. Um, there was one, there were many moments in, that I didn't have a lot of money. And I had a bloodhound at the time, Ellie Mae. And I was, I had like $14 left in my bank. She was out of food and I didn't have a lot of food. And so it was like, I had tuna fish and brown rice. I was like, I can... I'll eat that for a couple of days. So I went to the dog store and I like to feed her good quality food. So $14 wasn't going to get me a lot, but um, I walked in and there was a woman behind the counter that was hysterically crying. And it was the only one in the, I went to a small, like independently owned dog store, pet store. She was hysterically crying. I went, got, I went back and I got the smallest bag of, Good quality food I could find. Um, it was like $12.95. And I was like, okay, we're just gonna eat this for a couple of days and see what happens. And I walked up to the front and I'm like, are you okay? Do you need help? Do, can I help? Can I call somebody for you? Or and she hands me her work phone. And I'm like, hello. <laughs> she goes behind um somewhere in the back I'm talking on this phone and it was her mom on the other line and her mom had just said that you know can you please help I think her name was Cassandra can you please help Cassandra shut down the office she needs to come home and that's all she said I didn't ask anything about it and I was like yes I can uh so I hung up the phone made sure Cassandra shut down all her stuff and walked her out and she gave me the bag of dog food for free I helped her lock the car or lock the house, uh, lock her office up, and there was a car waiting for her, which I was grateful for because she was not okay to drive. She was hysterically crying still, and that was that. I never knew anything what happened. That was one of those bad moments. But Ellie Mae got food. 
I had some food in my cabinet and I saw $14 in my account. But that's bad. That's a crazy story. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So tell us a story about the ugly. The ugly. Um, definitely the worst of it was being bedridden. Really, I mean, unable. Uh, when I could work, I had to, I was so grateful that I had clients that it was like a daily check-in. If I like couldn't get out of bed, obviously I couldn't support people who wanted me to help them write stories and get those published on the country. Um, but there was this one day, it was really painful. And every time I closed my eyes, it was like I was being just attacked, like, um, you know, major self-doubt that came in and deep, deep, deep levels of crying and pain. Um, the ugly crying, really, that came forward out of this. And there was so much shame and so much guilt associated with being in that space and having to move myself out of that space once again. That is the, the depth of the belly, really of me having to reshape all of it in order to pull myself back up from it. Um, I just said this to my coach actually just earlier. I was, um, I've done it by myself so long and I, I, I've created such big impact in the world that um, sometimes I think I have to do it by myself or at least I used to, but I, after that experience, I will no longer be all of it for everybody. I don't take, I don't take it all on anymore because of that experience. And I think if you go through the bad and the ugly parts of this journey, you, I hope at least other women will get to a point where they recognize they don't have to do that, you know? For sure. At least I hope they do. Mm. And you talked about like, exactly how you did that, where you were on your back porch and you were having to face each different thing. And that had to be so painful. I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't, yeah, I do talk about it a lot. Um, when I'm, um, in the book, I do share those experiences and actually like do walk the reader through like First, I faced resentment and how I got there. And then I went down to anger and I just kept on getting all of these emotional flavors. Um, and that has come up twice. And so whether it was sitting on my back porch, moving through all of those emotions, that was definitely ugly. Or if it was lying in bed, having to deal with it all, plus the idea of like, um, what if he, you know, I was putting all this pressure on myself. What if the man I end up, being with is uh, disappointed that I can't have kids because I'm too old and I, all that crap that you put through yourself that you know all of that came up to the surface that's the ugliest piece is facing that processing that letting go of it and being able to move on from it that's an ugly process how interesting is it that, that now you found the one, right? So yeah. Yeah. Like now I feel like we have to tell the end of that story because you just said what you said. Yeah. Uh, so tell I, us the story <laughs> of, of the man you found who didn't care about that stuff. Right. Um, so while I was recovering in Wisconsin, I actually fell back in love with Wisconsin. I really was like, Oh, this feels good. I want to move back here. I, joined networking groups and I made new friends and I really like anchored myself into the community again, was looking for places to live. Meanwhile, I had a whole house of stuff in Scottsdale, Arizona. So I headed back to Scottsdale. Uh, I had downloaded Bumble, the dating app, and I believe where you put your energy, energy flows. And so while I was in Wisconsin, I was actually like, you know, swiping right. I was like, I'm going to put energy into my love life. I'm going to meet somebody here. So get on a plane, head back to Scottsdale, start packing up my stuff. And one night I'm like, I'm going to put energy into my love life. I know he's not here. I've dated in this town for 20 years. He's not here. Uh, it, I'm just doing this for the simple act of putting energy here. 
and ended up on a date with Gavin like three or four days after I got back to Scottsdale. Um, and on our second date, said yes to drinks and then, you know, said yes to a fun day out for St. Patrick's Day for our second date. And uh, at the end of that date, I was like, crap, I have a one-way ticket back to Wisconsin. <laughs> I enrolled in all of these networking groups. I have this like apartment that I'm like approved for. And I met the guy I'm gonna marry in Scottsdale. I knew on our second date that that was, he was the guy. Um, yeah, and we got married during COVID. Uh, obviously didn't move back to Wisconsin. And we're one of those COVID couples that um, we had a Zoom ceremony in 2020 and a reception in 2021. <laughs> so fun. That is such a fun story. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So you went back to Scottsdale to pack up and move and you end up finding the person you're going to be with forever. That's mm -hmm. an amazing story. Just like yeah. a fairy tale, right? My grandpa used to say, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. And so I remember as I was like walking through the city of Scottsdale on St. Patrick's Day, Gavin grabs my hand and there was this, you know, that magical feeling of like, home. I really did feel like that was solidified. And I thought of my grandpa and that saying, and I started to laugh and we we're crossing the bridge. And I remember Gavin saying, what's so funny? And I was like, my grandpa. And he's like, oh, cool. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to hear God laugh, tell me plans. I definitely got a chuckle that day for sure. I love that. So how long did you guys date before you got married in 2020? Mm -hmm. Like you said, you knew I on knew. the second date, you knew. So how long did it take you two to get that together? We met in 2018. We got married in September of 2020. So okay, two, two years. years. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, that is such a great ending to such an amazing and invincible story. Thank you so Thank much you. for being so open and sharing. And you know, I can't help but think as you're you know telling these stories that I keep thinking, what if that didn't happen? you wouldn't be where you are today, right? Every time you tell me something, I keep thinking if that didn't happen, you wouldn't be where you are today. And yeah. you're in such a sweet place right now. Um, I think that, you know, just from hearing and, and just knowing you, getting to know you and hearing the conversations that you probably didn't even imagine that there was a place this great for you. Um, and that now you're overwhelmed, right? by the surprise of how, how great life really can be. Um, yeah. and you get to see that. Yeah. Do you think that I, um, I'm living the life I manifested. I'm living the life I always wanted to manifest. And Gavin and I talk about that a lot. Um, on, he asked me yesterday, he's like, you know what? I never hear from you. He's like, how come you don't ever talk about the regrets you have? It's not that I don't believe in regrets. It's that I don't believe that, any misstep I've made has led me to a different path that would have ended up exactly where I am. I do believe exactly. that I were yeah. destined together. <laughs> he actually, as I was working at Severson Sisters, he was literally working at the building across the street from where I was. We've gone back and we've looked at, we lived in a mile and a half away from one another for the majority of our adult life and never met. We were like two ships passing constantly. He talked about bars he went to. I've been there. He talked about events he was at. I was there. Um, everything had to play out the way it played out and for us to meet. I love that. That just proves it's true, right? That, yeah. that, you know, when you're in the, the middle of these journeys and these crises and, and the most devastating times of your life, you still have to believe that, that it's all working out for your good and that there's going to be a happy ending. And that yeah. I don't think we're powerful enough to change the, you know, the trajectory of our life. I think whatever is meant for us is what we do end up with at the end yeah. of the day. Uh, but I do think we could make it easier on ourselves if we just believe that through the process 
it's, it's always easy, right. To look back and be like, Oh, that's why that happened. But when you're in it, you're like, I can't take this. Uh, and I think we need to like move into those places, just knowing that whatever it is, we're being prepared for that next greatest version mm-hmm. of who we are and what we're going to experience and the life we're going to live. And I'm just so excited for you, Carrie. Thank you so much for being with us. I know you're like a giddy little girl. I love it. She's in love. She's launched her book. It's all good. The moon and the stars have aligned for you. But, you know, this is why we're here to tell the story, because we never want anyone to look at you and say she's so lucky because luck comes when the harder you work, right, the harder you fight. The more times you get back up when you get knocked down, sure, that's what makes you lucky, right? Mm -hmm. It's not luck. It's it's the way it's supposed to be because you never gave up. And I love that. So let's tell them, I don't know where you are in your life or your business, you guys. But if you're face down on the ground right now, get back up, girl. Get back up. Tell them, Carrie. Yep, Absolutely. Just one foot in front of the other. Love yourself more than anybody else can and believe in yourself more than anybody else can and just take it one day at a time. You can do anything. Just get back up. Hey, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. If you were inspired or learned something new, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a review and share us with your friends. For more information about me and how I can support you, please stop on over to my website at camilehman.com and book a free call with me. I'd love to meet you and learn more about how I can support you.